Linux Journal readers. Thanks for tuning in to our podcast this week, or this every other week, as it as it were. Uh, I'm Catherine Druckman with Linux Journal, and I am joined by Petros Kachupis, our editor at large. You might remember him from the previous podcast, which is really awesome and all about migrating from Mac to Linux. Um, Doc is not joining us today because he is having fun on his summer vacation. So it's just us today. It'll be cool. Um, so Petros, uh, one of the reasons that we wanted to have this conversation on the podcast is because we we had this really great issue pretty recently, and it was all about the Linux kernel. And you wrote some really great deep dive articles, and we never got a chance to talk about them on the podcast. So here we are. It's it's not the current issue anymore, so I don't think we're we're worried too much about you know spoiler spoiler alerts. But yeah, let, I wanted to talk about it because you wrote one in particular that I thought was really useful, especially for people who are uh, learning, getting started. I mean, every all of us are learning, right? But um, anybody who wants to really learn more about what a kernel is and how it works and, and you know what it means to your operating system, I think should check out your deep dive on making your own kernel. So what do you think about that? Uh, first of all, I want to revisit this whole doc on uh, summer vacation thing. <laughs> what is summer vacation? <laughs> yeah, I, I still uh, need to figure out this whole summer vacation thing. Um, I have children and they're on summer vacation, but oddly enough, I am not. Uh, so I need to get in on this uh, whole uh, vacation. Do. do. Well, you know, when the kids are older, you get to go on vacation without them. Or that's my understanding anyway. Well, they're, they're still young where that's not going to happen anytime soon. Yeah. But uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Start saving that money now. So 20 years from now, you can have a vacation. Years from now, yeah, that's a while. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, no, that's this was an exciting issue for me. I uh, really enjoyed it a lot, especially because you know I've been in the kernel space for many years now, and uh, it's it's quite an interesting space to be in because it's always moving, especially the Linux kernel itself. One release is unlike the previous release releases where literally something that could have been working at some point one way is going to change in an upcoming release whether it's the way your driver compiles or the way your 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 driver is inserted with certain parameters i mean things are always subject to change and it's not like you know the bsd kernel where backwards compatibility is is always enforced and uh, a driver that you may have used from 15 years ago, like a printer driver is going to install in your, in your latest release of FreeBSD. That's not how Linux works. And it's just, it's an interesting environment to be in, especially if you've been in it for, I don't know how long. I mean, I've been mucking around with the kernel itself for well over 15 years. I actually was having a conversation with a colleague, which forced me to go to uh, the internet, which preserves everything, right? Everything. Uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> it does. The history of everything. And I was able to find a patch that I had submitted for the Linux kernel. At this time, it was the 2.4 Linux kernel. Get out. What year was that? Was 
which was, oh man, the patch was submitted in 2006. And at the time, Red Hat was getting ready to end of life uh, Red Hat Advanced Server version three, which still operated on the 2.4 kernel. And you know, the 2.6 was out for a while, but they were still supporting the 2.4 and so was kernel.org, the, 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 the community was still supporting uh, 2.4. And at the time releases, kernel releases were not as frequent and they also weren't consistent because of the lack of frequency in what was being patched. For instance, because the releases were, were you know, um, you know, further apart than it is today. You know, every today you get frequent releases, sometimes multiple in a week, of of the same you know released stable branch. But back then, it could have been weeks before you saw another iteration or another uh, version release, which led to many vendors such as SUSE, uh, Red Hat, and you know, Debian having their own versions of that 2.4 kernel because of their patches that have yet to be included in the mainline. So it was a different environment. Sure. And when I submitted patches back then, I submitted one for Red Hat, one for the mainline, one for SUSE, SUSE uh, and one, you know, and, and so on. So it was completely different landscape. And I'm glad that things have kind of come together as of the 2.6 kernel. And now you're starting to see a lot more activity and it happening a lot more frequently. So it gives vendors very little excuse to stray from the main line. Now you still have those vendors such as Red Hat that are developing their own Franken kernel, uh, which is essentially a lot. <laughs> they take the main line and then just backport security fixes and, fi and, and, and features of later kernels on top of the main line that that main release is locked into. For instance, right now they just released uh, Red Hat uh, Enterprise Linux version 8. And version 8 is locked down to uh, the 4.18 kernel. Well, throughout the life of uh, you know, RHEL 8, they're going to be using the 4.18 kernel. It'll be years before RHEL 9 is released. But until then, you'll be on 4.18 and it will eventually incorporate many, many security patches from later kernels. Uh, many, many, many uh, features backported from later kernels. So it's gonna turn into this ugly mess. But Red Hat <laughs> Red has, you know, pretty consistent with, with maintaining it. But anyway, my point was, you know, I was able to find, you know, at least one of the patches from over a decade ago, which just brought, you know, memories back in. And, and it's just, it's amazing how things have evolved. And, and it just goes to show you that, you know, the, the, just the kernel itself, it's, it organically grew. It's evolved significantly since, you know, it was first introduced by Linus, you know, way back when on, you know, the, uh, on that Minix, um, mm, you know, where, board, yeah. where, where he says that it probably won't grow into anything big, right? You know, it just. <laughs> yes, I remember, yeah. It's pretty funny. Yeah. Which I think it's I funny how long ago that was now, that's, but that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, and, and uh, it's, it's, I think I made some sort of reference or joke 
in the uh, in the piece that I wrote about uh, making your own kernel uh, at the very end, where I, I think I uh, allude to uh, you know sending an email mm -hmm. to uh, to a mailing list to explain to people that it's just a hobby and uh, it probably won't grow into anything bigger. Right. So yeah, so I do I do want to talk a little bit about more about that article, but I also wanted to just quickly, you know, as an additional plug for the awesome May issue, um, there along the lines of what you were just talking about, there's a really great interview that Brian did with um, some kernel maintainers from Red Hat Sousa Intel, I think. Anyway, it's, it goes, it, you really get a, a, a nice peek under the hood of what the, the kind of day-to-day -day activities are, you know, with those kernel developers. And it's, it's kind of, a, you know, I think it's useful for people to dive into the mystery of it. For me, it's, you know, it's something that I use, obviously. I mean, who, who among us isn't benefiting from their work, right? But it's nice to kind of get a little behind-the-curtain view. But yeah, so back to your, your um, Make Your Own Kernel article I thought it was so I come from a very different <laughs> environment I you know the technology I use is web platforms Drupal that kind of thing and so this is definitely closer to the hardware than <laughs> than I get but it was interesting because I thought well wow taking taking somebody through this is is uh, incredibly useful just just as a learning exercise and so well <clears throat> I actually How did you write this article, Petros? <laughs> no, I had a lot of fun with this one uh, specifically because, you know, back when I was in college, I'm a, I'm a double E, or I am a double E major. I, I graduated with a double E degree. And mm -hmm. the reason why I mention this is that the focus of my education was hardware. And towards the end of my um, my education, we were focusing a lot on embedded, you know, microcontrollers, embedded boards. And at the time, Linux was not super huge in the commercial embedded environment. I mean, it was used, don't get me wrong. And there were hobby kits that were being built, but it wasn't mainstream like it is today. Today, you have your you know, your Raspberry Pis, you have your, you know, Beagle boards, and, and there's just a hundred million different other you know, hobby kits that Linux can run on. You but may or may not have a collection of Pi Zeros in a drawer. For now. Exactly. <laughs> and, and the kits back then weren't cheap either. You're, you're talking about getting a complete kit uh, that you had to connect to Windows in order to, to, to you know, uh, flash your code over. Uh, I could have run you up about a few hundred bucks at a minimum, uh, if not more. And I remember when I was at, you know, in, in college, you know, we had to run on these kits just to be able to learn how microprocessors worked, how memory addressing worked, how just how everything worked. And, you know, we had to build our own hardware that plugged into various ports on these uh, microprocessors. And at the end of the day, we had to write operating systems for it, you yeah. know, minimal kernels, things like that. And it was such a fun educational uh, exercise. I loved it so much. Maybe some of the others didn't, but I did. The nerd in me said, this is awesome. This was the coolest thing ever. I was able to write an operating system. It did absolutely nothing. It would just sort numbers. It didn't do anything, right? Yeah, you know? but it, it gave you control over a machine. And that was cool, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and the worst part of it is, even though I enjoyed it so much, 
I had to do it in assembly. Now, <laughs> oh, <laughs> getting super nerdy. <laughs> exactly. I had to do it in assembly. I remember one microcontroller was the Motorola H, you know, 68HC11, and I had to use Motorola assembly. It was not easy to learn, but you know what? It's, it was quite a learning experience. So when I, you know, thought to myself for this kernel issue, you know, what should I write about? One of the first things that came to mind was, you know, let's show our readers what it takes to write just your basic, does almost absolutely nothing kernel, just so they can understand how some of these pieces come together. You know, what, what did, you know, when, when younger Linus, you know, was working on his own, you know, what steps would he have taken? Obviously, we don't know. You know, only Linus knows, if he can remember, right? You know, what steps would he have taken to develop his own kernel, you know, start from the beginning to the point he eventually releases it to the wild? And in no way, shape, or form is this, you know, this, this article, you know, replicating that uh, you know, procedure or process, but it gives our readers an idea of, you know, the, the various components, the various moving parts of being able to, you know, load, uh, bootload into, into our boot code and from our boot code launch our, you know, which is written in assembly, launch our C file. In the C file, being able to take control over our, uh, our, our terminal screen and just print out a message. Hello from Linux Journal. I mean, that's the message that the, uh, the, the, the guide uh, tells our readers to, to, to do. And I remember when we first published this uh, issue, I started getting some positive feedback saying this was awesome. You know, I was able to, to run through these exercises and it was, you know, quite fun. So I was glad to do this, uh, this piece. And why would somebody do it? Well, because you could. Right? Isn't that the right. typical? Uh, yeah, it takes you back to being 15, right? I mean, I would imagine while you were doing this, you were kind of back to 15 year old you. Did you spend a lot of time at Radio Shack? Uh, back when Radio Shack was, uh, was the coolest place to be as a nerd. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I did spend a considerable amount of time there. You know, I, I used to get a lot of components and in parts for various electronics uh, when I was when I was younger to be able to fix like my father's radio or, yeah. or right. Radio Shack used to be. I mean, it, I don't. I don't. I can't remember when it changed and then it you know went away. But but you know back in the day, man, just drawers and drawers of little you know pieces and components. It was an electrician's or a you know a budding electrical engineer's playground. It was, and then it just kind of. Eh. I don't know, maybe, well, we can buy all that online, you know, why do you need Radio Shack when you have Adafruit, right? It's not the same. I mean, I, I was, you know, talking with my, uh, my wife earlier about that excitement I used to have when I used to go to um, CompUSA, you know, back, mm, yep. back in the day, and being able to just go through aisles and aisles and aisles of just boxes of software, it just brought back, you know, it, it, it's just that feeling of excitement, being able to pick up that physical box and then flip it over 1800 times thinking that it's every single time, right? Just to be able to, you know, look at what you wanted to buy, whether it was a game or, or a piece of software. Yeah, that's a good point. Activity software. Micro Center kind of, still, still is kind of like that. Do you have a Micro Center in, up there? Yeah, we do have. That's one. probably the closest. We have at least one in the 
you know, Western suburbs of Chicago. And I, I go to it on occasion, but it's not the same as it used to be. Mm. Uh, right now they're focused heavily on like, like hobbyist type stuff, which is great. They have a huge section on raspberry Pi related. Uh, yes, they do. Equipment, which is great. Great. I, I give them a lot of credit, but it's not the same. Sure. It's not, it's, it, it, you know, back in the day, those kind of stores were like a cross between Home Depot and Micro Center. You know what I mean? It was like the same way you can go to Home Depot and look at drawers of screws and washers. You could do that with electrical components and electronics and whatnot. But yeah. I was also joking with my wife about back in the day, we're talking about 90s when you were able to walk into a Best Buy and on the shelf there was, you know, Coral Linux. Uh, there oh, was wow, yeah. Uh, Susie and maybe even Mandrake. I, I don't remember, but this was like a package <laughs> right next to your yeah. you know, Windows 98 second edition. It was, <laughs> it was, you had variety, you had options. And, you know, when, when XP sort of took over, Windows XP sort of took over, those options began to disappear. Right? Sure. And I just kind of missed miss that time period it was it was a good time it is a good time so so now that we've gotten all super nostalgic <laughs> uh, yeah so check check out the it's again it's the may it's the may issue and you can make your own kernel and learn things it'll be great but um the other thing that we talked about um in, in that issue or rather that you wrote about was probably going to be pretty useful to a lot of people um, I am one of those people. Then, it, and that is the article on debugging Linux kernel panics. Now, I, that doesn't happen to me very regularly, but when it does happen, it sucks and it's frustrating. And I always feel like I am not smart enough for this. This is like this is what I go through every time. So, so uh, it actually so, happens to me quite a lot. But that's because I write a lot of kernel code and drivers. Well, sure. <laughs> For you, that makes sense. For me, not so much. When it comes to production-grade uh, code, it's not necessarily buggy code that triggers a lot of these kernel panics. It's usually buggy hardware or firmware on hardware. But when it happens, it's nice to be able to grab a dump of these uh, kernel panics, you know, the current state of your, your memory and, and in your... Um, you know, microprocessor, like the instruction pointer, uh, you know, what's, what's it's processing during the time of the panic. It's nice to be able to capture this state, mm -hmm. dump it to a file, and then use a debugging utility such as Crash to be able to step through the backtrace of what that processor was uh, processing at the time that led to the eventual panic. And then being able to go backwards in time to see what piece of code, what function, what line of that function, what parameter that's being fed into, you know, that line in that function is triggering that panic. And sometimes it's a result of poorly written code. Maybe that code doesn't have the proper checks in place to be able to prevent that uh, kernel panic from happening. But in other cases, like I said, when I had to debug a lot of these things for, for customer appliances, like in, in production, in, in the field, more often than not, it was a result of flaky hardware, bad hardware. But it's nice to be able to have that capability, that knowledge 
that power to go in and, and, and prove that being, you know, that being the case or not. And that was the focus of the, uh, the second uh, article that I'd written. And that is, you know, you get one of these oops errors, you get a kernel panic, then what, what do you do? You cry. You could just reboot the machine and pretend like nothing happened. Yes, you could do that. But why would you do that? That would be foolish. Well, I mean, that's, that's, what, I would do. <laughs> that's what I would do. Would you turn it off and on again? <laughs> I, I may or may not have done that recently. It was fine, though. So, you know, hey. But, you know, that's, again, it's nice if you have the ability to go through, you know, the traditional steps of just tracing through the code. And I sort of give a primer or an introduction to this process. And, you know, you sort of build up, you know, your skill set, you know, from this primer. So my article gives you the foundation, the the building blocks and you it's it's up to you to go beyond that point and there are many resources on the internet to to learn more beyond what i have uh, written but what i wrote what is in the issue is a nice introduction so yeah be sure to check that out read it just, read just it. drop the podcast and read it now then come back to the podcast <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, keep keep a keep a copy of the, the pdf handy on your desktop <laughs> So that, or your phone, actually, <laughs> so that when your laptop goes crazy. Yeah. Really? I did not have it handy the last time this happened to me. So, but <laughs> from now on, I always will. Well, there's, 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 a, there's a catch, though. Your kernel or your, your environment, your operating system needs to be configured to be able to support KDump or the kernel dumping mechanism. Uh, so some distributions enable it by default, while others you have to opt in. And, you know, it shouldn't be a big deal for someone to set it up afterwards. There are, and, 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 I, and I do provide instructions of how you can do that. So let's say you install Ubuntu mm-hmm. or Debian, and you realize, wait a minute, KExec, which is also used in KDump are not configured uh, appropriately to enable me to capture a dump of my crash kernel. In the introduction of this article, I provide a how-to of how you can set that up. So if you are running on an operating system right now and it isn't configured, don't worry. You can do that. You just have to make sure you apply whatever instructions I have here to your distribution if you're not running on Ubuntu or Debian already. Uh, and, you know, hopefully, you know, if done right, then any future kernel panic, you'll be able to capture that, uh, you know, the state of the failure and then analyze it as soon as uh, you reboot the machine. You still have to reboot it. You can't analyze it in place, right, of the panic. But uh, once you reboot the machine, you can go back and, and uh, use the uh, crash utility to analyze and, and trace through the code. And the beauty is when you trace through the code with the instructions that I provided, it'll tell you, hey, it's in this file of the, the source tree, in this directory, on this line of the file. And all you have to do is just open up the file, look at that line and say, hey, that's exactly where it failed. But why? Cool. Yeah, it is cool. 
It is cool. <laughs> so back to the nostalgia thing. Actually, well, now that you that you bring it up, um, I found a hobby kit to recreate a miniaturized version uh, emulated from an Arduino Linux microcontroller board of the Altair 8800. I don't know if oh, you're yeah? familiar with the Altair. Essentially the first, um, you know. Maybe. The first home user type computer. You okay. Know, way back when from, you know, MIPS or, you know, whatever the, the Texas company was called. Anyway, the, it was the very same computer that made both uh, Gates and uh, Paul Allen extremely famous because, or, you know, it was uh, the computer that allowed them to build Microsoft because they wrote their oh. original Visual Basic, or not Visual Basic, the original Basic compiler. Oh, yeah. So anyway, it was this computer, the Altair 8800. So when I saw a hobby kit to build a, when I say miniaturized, I mean, the original kit, unassembled, that came to you when you ordered it back in the 70s was like 60 pounds. Oh, okay. Yes, I know what, I know what we're talking about. It's like so. this big blue yeah, box. It's a massive box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With a bunch of LEDs because there's no, no screen connected. Yeah. So you, you typed into it through like a serial cable. Uh, you typed into it uh, via a teletype. You know, with like a spool, like a printing paper, like attached to it, like a, like what you'd see at a cash register. Mm -hmm. so type to it, you know, whatever code or message, and then it'd go over the serial line and then come back with its response, right? That's how you did it back then. And uh, I'm actually pretty excited because when I move to the new house, I'm going to assemble this and get it all set up. And hopefully it'll be featured on like a Linux journal so when you say miniaturized, how, how, how miniaturized? I mean, it's still, it would be, uh, how can I describe this? It would be, I mean, it's not, when I say miniaturized, it's not like tiny. It's, imagine like it being like a foot, a little over a foot wide, you know, a, a depth of like a couple of inches, you know, uh, at least like half a foot high. Like okay. it, you'd be able to stand it on your desk or on a shelf somewhere. Okay. Where people would be able to mess with the toggles and the switches like you would the original piece. Oh, how fun. That, see, now that would be a cool learning exercise too, especially, well, for anybody, but especially for young people because, you know, <laughs> like the, the, the difference between that and, and the super powerful computer they held in their hand again is, you know, well, massive. The irony is there's a super powerful Arduino board that's um, right, emulated. right. That's it's just a clock down to too <laughs> funny, too funny. To run it like eight hertz, making that up. But anyway, that'll be great. Oh man, to see that, that uh, people would I, I think people would really enjoy an article about that. So yeah, which you know, super fun. I like it, especially if you can get get it to look as cool. You know, yeah, and, and I actually have already been. Looking you have at, all the little LEDs. Well, it's it the kit has it all. Oh, so it already comes with all that. Okay. It already comes with all that stuff. I just need to whip out the soldering iron and follow the instructions and flash the the SD card and do all that fun stuff. But when that's all uh, done, I already have it on my radar 
to buy one of these original teletype keyboards because uh, I can connect it to this box and literally pretend like how it was back in the day. Wow. Um, you know, your, your hobbyist was, was uh, dabbling with it. So I'm really excited uh, to get that up. It just won't happen for another couple months or so. Oh, cool. Do you think your, your kids will, will have fun playing with stuff like that too? Or are they too young for that still? They're, I wish they had an interest. They just don't. I mean, she's yeah, nine. They're young. He's six. And he's too young. For they, they just don't care. They're, they're into their video games. Right now they're yeah. focused on Nintendo Switches and iPod Touches. And that's a- yeah, that's, that's like when I was, I wanna, when I was nine, I was really into computers, but that's because that Bill Cosby was advertising the, the TI-99, you know? So, of course, I, you know, I was into programming basic on my TI-99 and playing Parsec, but that's because that's all there was. There, we did not have iPhones, so I don't know if I would have thought that was cool, you know, as a retro yeah. gaming situation. But anyway. yeah, well, cool. Uh, so what should we talk about next? You know, what... <clears throat> What I'm curious about is um, the future of uh, Linux on some of these mainstream devices. Yes, that is an excellent question. It's not a question. I mean, uh, that is an excellent <laughs> statement. <laughs> it's an excellent thing to wonder about. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting because, you know, Google sort of brought Linux to the mainstream. I remember back in the day, IBM, do you remember those old IBM commercials where they were advertising Linux? Uh, They had like some child act as the face of Linux in these commercials. Yes, yes, it was, uh, do you mean the, the wait, who was that for? Was it the one with uh, Justin Long as the, I thought that was a Mac ad. I thought it was no, a parody of a Mac ad. It's different. Now, we're talking about something different completely. IBM was the one that was. You're uh, talking about a real advertisement. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember the commercials too well. I'm sure YouTube has, you know, has it archived somewhere. But even, even after that, you know, you, you had Red Hat that, um, you know, really, opened up Linux on the enterprise. Not that no one else did. It's just Red Hat really brought, you know, Linux, a a commercial face to Linux. And I think did a good job of making Linux uh, mature itself in in the data center. uh, Or at least make people think Linux as a serious option, right? Uh, In the data center. But I don't know. It's like, Nowadays, still a lot of people, your, your average, you know, individual still doesn't know what Linux is and yet they're using it. Oh, sure. Right. Consumer electronics. And, you know, whether they're using Chromebooks or Android, and there's a million other devices that are in their house, whether it's, you know, smart devices such as thermostats you know, like IoT related stuff or set-top boxes. I think the Roku also runs on Linux. You know, smartwatches. Everything that they use is all running on the Linux kernel. And I don't think that's going to change anytime in the near future, at least as it relates to a lot of these smart devices and, uh, you know, IoT related devices. I'm curious as to 
what Google's approach will be as their almost competitive kernel that they're developing in-house, which I think is called Fuchsia, is going to mature enough where they start swapping this stuff out, right? At least I think, I believe that's what their intended goal is. So I'm curious as to what that will eventually lead to. Well, I would think the motivations of, you know, a company like Google or, or somebody who's making consumer devices and, and like you say, IoT devices and that kind of thing, the, the, the motivations are different from, you know, somebody who's working on you know, enterprise server architecture or, and, and somewhere along the line that must, you know, impact the, the roadmap that they take, right? Yeah. I mean, Linux in the enterprise is not going to go anywhere. Sure. But, it, but it's a very different beast than uh, people working on something to, you know, make a consumer phone stable or something like, you know, it's, it's, it's a different, well, it's a different motivation. So I don't know. They, actually, so it's interesting. You kind of read my mind. The, the thing that I was kind of getting at earlier that I couldn't quite put into words is just that there is, there is this, there's a massive distance between where you were as a you know a young person submitting kernel patches and where linux machines of any kind are today and you know with that progress has come a lot of stability and and, and wonderful stuff but at the same time it's um segmented into all of these you know areas like we talk about, and I just wonder, like, it's interesting to me that, like, like you say, everybody's walking around with a Linux machine. Well, not everybody, you know. Android users are all walking around with a, little, a very powerful Linux machine in their pocket, and yet are totally, would have no, probably have never heard the phrase kernel panic, you know. So, I don't know, to me, that's, that's an interesting conversation. Or the word Linux. Or sure, yeah, or the word Linux, to be honest. I mean, how many, oh, well... You know, in your day-to-day -day life, you pro probably everybody knows exactly what you do. And when you say that you write for Linux Journal, they know exactly what that means. But when you go out, you know, and into the wild and you, somebody asks what you do. <laughs> Linux Journal? Well, what? what, what? what? <laughs> oh, you mean the China? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's funny, the, uh, the reactions that I get when, when people ask, what do you do exactly? I'm a... Uh, I'm a Linux kernel device driver developer, right? Or I, I work with Linux. I mean, a lot of times I get these puzzled looks back. You know, it's 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 kind of funny because uh, yeah. then you kind of go and have to explain it to them. You know, this thing called Microsoft Windows. Yeah, well, it's not that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or but but now it's so much easier. You know that thing in your pocket. Yeah, it's that. <laughs> but it's funny because whenever I ask. Whenever people ask me, hey, what do you do? You know, a lot of times I just say, I, I write operating systems. I just simplify it. I just write operating systems. You know, I have this problem with my uh, CD-ROM drive. Really? Wait, really? people still have those? <laughs> just kidding. No, it's, it's, it happens more often than you, than you think. You know, when you... I'm looking at one right now. I'm full of it. <laughs> you, them, uh, you, you know, write code, all of a sudden you become IT. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with becoming IT. I'm not. I'm not in any way uh, indicating as as um, as much. But uh, yeah, it's just it's it's amazing uh, how many 
many individuals who, like you said, are carrying Linux in their pocket, just don't know what it is, right? And right. it's, it's, it's going to continue. And, you know, it's, I don't think that's a problem. I don't think that's an issue. Um, but I, and, and I do think it's great to see how, how powerful, you know, the kernel has become. It's become so powerful that now even Microsoft is embracing it, right? They're relying on Linux in their own data centers to be able to spin up containers, to be able to, I know, I, re, I remember reading somewhere that they spun up their own Debian uh, d distribution that they're running on their switches in, in the Azure cloud. And this is, this is amazing to me. At one point, they called Linux a cancer, or at least, mm, you know, yeah. Balmer did. Balmer did, yeah. But fast forward to the present, and they're embracing it. They're using it internally. They see the potential. Yep. I mean. Well, it's everywhere. It, I mean, maybe, you know, it may not have been a cancer, but it was definitely viral, as they say. It did spread. So, it's. It's not a bad thing, or at least we don't think it is. We ha it isn't yet. <laughs> Who knows? So yeah, it's not, not not a bad deal for something that uh, you know someone who uh, shall remain uh, nameless uh, posted a message on uh, a Usenet group somewhere, you know, uh, saying how it probably won't be big and professional like GNU. Um, not a bad deal. Not a bad deal. Yeah. So so I guess in short. Thank your kernel developers. Be nice to them. They make everything work. <laughs> well, you know how there's a, a day for, you know, uh, for I, there's like a, a, a IT appreciation day or secretary appreciation day or something appreciation day. We should at least have a kernel developers appreciation. I like it. We're doing it. Yep. Okay. We need to get on that. Let's make a kernel developers appreciation day. Oh, oh, I like it. Because if okay. it weren't for the kernels, your applications wouldn't have anything to run on, right? True. That's true. So, yeah. yes, thank, thank your kernel developers. Everyone. Application developers get all the glory. And, or I don't know, maybe they don't either. <laughs> yeah. Python and, 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 uh, and Bash and um, you know, Drupal and, and all that fun stuff wouldn't run if it weren't for a kernel. We would, have, we would be nowhere without a really... Exactly smoothly running kernel well, on that note please read the issue if you haven't checked it out yet have that uh, kernel panic article on on standby somewhere somewhere handy